Well, good morning. Aren't you glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Amen? Amen. So good to see everybody today. So thankful for you. You guys look fantastic. Um, listen, we're going to start a brand new series uh, this morning and continue it over several weeks. And we're just simply calling it Church Signs. Okay? And so um, a lot of you, um, you read different church signs as you go through our, our community. Our community uh, is loaded with churches, thus it's loaded with a lot of signs. Um, as a matter of fact, when we came over to build this campus, there were probably a dozen of you that said, hey, when we move, are we going to get a church sign? And uh, I said, no, I'm not going to get a church sign. It means somebody's got to change it, and I don't want to do that. Um, so um, church signs, so we're all familiar with the classic church sign, and so what we're going to do, we're going to take classic church signs and talk about misconceptions of God and His church. That church sign, historically, um, has been a way for churches to lightheartedly, uh, but also make an attention getter for passerbys, and so uh, when I was a youth pastor, we had a church sign, and it was, it was a tall one, so you had to get a ladder uh, out and go out there to put it up, and then it was double-sided, so you had to do twice of the same thing. I mean, it was an hour of your of, of your week, every week. Uh, it rained, uh, or January, it was just freezing, and I got to where I would pull my truck up, stand on the, on the bed of my uh, truck, and so um, it was terrible, um, but in January, I would go out there, and my, my pastor would come in, and he would say, why, why does the sign say Jesus wept on it? You know, and I'd say, well, because it's 30 degrees outside and um, it's very cold. So, you know, I tried to find the smallest thing that I, I could to get it done. But um, here's some here's some signs that we found on, on the Internet. You guys have probably seen these, but let, let's read these together. Uh, go ahead and give me that first one. Uh, do you know what hell is? Come here, our preacher. Ha, ha, ha. That's not even funny. Uh, cremation is your last chance for a smoking hot body. Uh, that's good. That's pretty good. Um, to err is human, to R is pirate. I don't. I mean, that's not even theologically sound. Um, but uh, God loves you more than Kanye loves Kanye. I thought that was that's pretty good. Do we got one more? Yeah. Tweet others as you'd like to be tweeted. That's pretty good. Okay. And uh, without the bread of life, you're toast. Okay. It's just yeah. Let's give it up for Berea Baptist Church this morning. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Without the bread of life, you're toast. See, and they, they just get more and more corny. You see why I don't want to have one? Okay. Um, but the one that we're going to focus on this morning is, is a classic. Uh, every church has, has put it on there at some point. It's this one. Don't make me come down there. Uh, God. Okay. We, we really got into these for a while. Maybe five or six years ago, we got into everything had, had, a, had a God tag on it. But this one was the most popular one, okay? Don't make me come down there. And we, it's so funny because when we start to lay this over our theology, it, it can get really confusing. And so this morning, I, I want to talk about why do we feel that this is even a statement? Why do we feel that this is something that, that really goes along with who we are in Christ and so, for the second time in about 90 days, maybe may longer than that, I'm going to talk about this great big gift of grace and the balance of it with truth, okay? But if we're honest, this idea of don't make me come down there exists 
or has existed in some form in every single one of us. Maybe, maybe this is a big pillar in, in the way that you see God, and maybe it's just something very, very uh, minute in the way that you see God. But uh, typically, if you were raised in the South, this is definitely something that you experienced, is that don't make me come down there. Okay, so it's almost like God is looking for a reason to come to, to take his belt off and come down here. Okay, I don't know uh, how many of you grew up in a home where there was spankings. Go ahead and raise your hand. We're not going to call anybody. Yeah. Okay, so a lot of you, the rest of you, um, missed out. Okay, it's a phenomenal part of growing up. Um, but there were, there were spankings involved in my home on a regular basis. Not because of me, but because of my sister. But anyway, I did witness it. Um, but we had some killer whippings growing up. I mean, killer. Like, can't sit down for a while. Uh, stuff that right now would be classified as abuse. And I would second that, you know. Um, and so, um, I remember I always say this, but th- this is really true. My dad had, had one of those country belts that had his name on it. It said Larry, Okay. And so one time he whipped me. I was in shorts, and there were two R's on the back of my leg. Okay, I'm not kidding, y'all. Uh, you know, R and R on the back of my leg for like three days. You know, I was putting aloe on it. You know, trying to. He, he felt terrible, but it's still. I'm glad he did feel terrible. Some of you had people in your life outside of your parents who were allowed to spank you. Like, you go to your grandma's. She was allowed to spank you. Grandma's should not be allowed to spank. But my grandma had, had this favorite tree, and it had a, you know, go out there and get a switch. She'd, like, make you go pick it out. Like, the weapon of choice, go pick it out. And uh, one time I brought her something real small, light, light, light like this, and she was like, that's fine. I'm going to spank you with it till it breaks, and she did. My parents would take me to church and tell my Sunday school teacher, now if he gets out of hand, you spank him. You wear him out. Okay, I was like, why do people, everywhere I go, every place we go, somebody's allowed to spank me. This is terrible. I couldn't wait till the teenage years, and then it didn't stop then. My mom used to spank me with a fly swatter and, uh, or any, anything that she could get her hands on. But the fly swatter was her weapon of choice, and when she was done, it would be all wound up like origami. It looked like a little swan to sit on the, yeah. And, and the older I got, she would, she would get me with the fly swatter, and uh, people stopped making like the metal handle one. She'd get a plastic one, it would break, and she'd just keep on going. Um, but I would laugh. It would make, make me laugh, and then uh, she would say, well, you just wait till your dad gets home, and then I wouldn't laugh then. If you're a teenager, you probably cannot relate to this, but again, when I was growing up, principals, teachers, coaches, they all had permission to spank you. And uh, I had several teachers, principals, and coaches who had customized paddles. And they would drill holes in them. Like it was well thought out, like to minimize wind resistance between you and, and the wood what can we do to just get a real full throttle swing in? Let's eliminate wind resistance. 
And they would get really creative. One of my coaches airbrushed his. It had like a nickname on it. It had a contoured bicycle handle that he would hold on to. And a strap around his wrist. I was like, you're going to hit me so hard that you're going to lose your grip? I mean, my God, this is terrible. And then if you survived it, he would let, let, let you sign your name on it. And so I would put, Kevin was here. Again. It was just like... Uh, this, and for some, for some reason, this is our view of God. I'm going to come down there. And when I get there, I got a paddle. It's got holes in it. It's, it's got a nickname. It's got a customized grip, ergonomic grip on it. I mean, you are going to feel me come into your life. And you're going to know it. And it is, and it's terrible. So I, I want to ask you a question. Do not raise your hand, okay? Do not raise your hand, but I want to ask you a question. How many of you feel that God is more angry with you than in love with you? I just want you to think about it. How many of you are now here in your adult years, and this is actually a position of your faith that you think that God is more angry with you than He is in love with you? Okay. When I was a kid, again, this, this was teaching that we got all of the, the time. And, we, and I, I've shared this with you many, many times, and we've laughed about this many, many times in church to, to together. But, but our theology was that God couldn't wait to just scratch your name out of the Lamb's book of life over a thought or a word or an action, even though you feel like, man, I'm trying, I'm on the straight and narrow, I'm doing, I'm doing what the Bible says, I got a strong moral compass, I'm praying, I'm in the Word, I'm serving, but I just keep having this thing in my life, and, and so I know I'm not going to make it. And I've told you this before, but between the age of like 10 and 19, I got saved like 541 times. It's true. Every single time something went wrong, Father, forgive me coming to my life. Uh, I'm really sorry about that thought. Please write my names down in the, in the Lamb's book of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, whew, I'm good. About three hours later, I'd see, you know, Dukes of Hazard. Then you're back to praying again, Father. <laughs> in the name of Jesus, cleanse my mind. Daisy Duke, God, rebuke her in the name of Jesus. Come into my life, write my name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. That was life for us. Every day, every day, every day. And I remember waking up at night with anxiety. Like, am I, am I, is something going to happen? And you all know that feeling. You come in from school and your mom is gone and you think the rapture's happened. Like you call, hey, mom, I'm home. And there's nothing. You drop your books and you get that, your bladder starts jumping around like you got to go suddenly. And, I remember I had this fail-proof plan. I called my grandma because she's really saved. And if she answers the phone, I'm good. I've told you all this. And sometimes I would call her and she would say, hello, I just hang up. I'm like, I know, I'm good. If she's still on the planet, the rapture has not. Come on, y'all. Anybody? Yeah. Y'all have called your grandma before. <laughs> These are my people right here. Okay. Yeah, we grew up this way. Don't make me come down there. Okay, that's that, this mentality that, that we've had. 
And so let me, let me just throw this out. This is a dangerous doctrine that we fear God more than we are in love with God. That we have this very unhealthy view of I can't wait to come, I cannot wait to punish you, I cannot wait to mess you up and show you that you have done this all wrong. And, and it's like we're not getting enough of the teaching that there is grace in, in our lives. And I've, I've told you this many times too, but I was at least, at least 30 before somebody sat with me and taught me anything about grace. I thought grace was for perfect people. Perfect people received grace because their works had just elevated them to this point of now they were friends with God. They'd done so many good things and they'd just pruned their life over and over and over to the point that they were such good people that God gave them grace. And if I could ever do enough right, then I would get grace and become the friend of God. Don't make me come down there. So there have been times, because we have succumbed to this dangerous doctrine, there have been times that we attend church, not because we want to worship, but because we don't want God to come down there. Or there have been times the offering comes around and we quickly go through, okay, yeah, let's do that. It's not, not because my heart is cheerful to do it. I don't want God to come down here. Or there are times that we, we say this or do that, and, and, and the filter of that particular action is not through the fact that we love the kingdom, but it's through this fearful life of don't make me come down there. I see you. Okay? I know what's going on. Do not make, make me come down there. A.W. Tozer gave this great quote, and I, I want to give it to you this morning. This is what he says. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That what comes into our minds when, when we think about God is it because that tells us what, what we're driven toward. It tells you why you got up this morning and got your family ready and brought them to the house of God. Because you either wanted to be close to Him, you wanted to be in His presence, or for some reason you're living off this checklist, and if it's not checked off, then you're not going to make it. And that drives you. And he says, the most important thing about us is, is when we hear about, about God, what is our mind saying? Okay, I want you to turn in your Bible or your Bible app to John chapter 8. And I want to talk to you for, about this story for just a minute. A lot of us know this. Uh, God, John's gospel is so good and rich, and it's just got so much in it. But I want us to go to John chapter 8. We're going to look through verse 1 through 11. And I'm reading from the New Living this morning. Um, this is what it says. Let's read it together. So Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple in a crowd had soon gathered, and he sat down and he taught them. So he's having church. People have come around him. He's opening his heart up. He's talking to people. He's loving me, but he's doing what Jesus does. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd. Verse 4. Teacher, they said to Jesus. 
This woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Verse 6. They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. He stooped down again, he wrote in, in the dust, and when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Okay? Go and sin. This, this is a powerful, powerful statement here. Okay, it has got so much balance with grace and truth because he's telling her, I don't condemn you, but stop sinning. All right? And so in verse 3, you've got this group that periodically shows up around Jesus, and Jesus was kind to just about every single group in Scripture, but this one he had some rigid moments with. These Pharisees were teachers, they were a religious group, and they were married firmly to Old Testament law. They were known for a lot of things, but a few of them were for being self-righteous, for having a lot of pride, for hypocrisy, for legalism, also known as how most of us grew up, legalistic. A lot of times full of pride. And in verse 5, when they said the law of Moses says to stone her, but watch this, it takes two people to commit adultery. Where was the man? They left him out, brought her. The whole thing is, is, is a trap. And if you read verse 6, the truth is they didn't care about this woman. They just want to trap him. That's the whole goal. Let's trap him. And so, if Jesus says, yes, stone her, then his reputation for grace is destroyed. If he says, let her go, then he condones adultery. So, they're, they're trying to paint him into a corner. And the way that Jesus responds can teach us about the heart of God. So, let's take a few notes from this this morning. The first thing I want to point out in this story is this. Jesus wants religion away from our lives. And this is going to be very hard for those of you who see religion as, as a vehicle and you like it and you're constantly polishing it and, 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 and waxing the vehicle. Religion has been something that, that man creates in the hopes that we can do something right. And some of you think this, why would God want religion away from us? I thought this was a good thing. So let me, let me just do a few comparisons. Religion is man's attempt to reach toward God. But Christ is God's attempt to reach man. Religion is motivated by fear. All these things that you and I have talked about. Because the majority of our lives, the majority of our Christian walks, I would dare say, if I threw out a stereotypical statement, would be that a lot of us have been married to religion more than we've been married to actual relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And so religion is motivated by fear. Christ is motivated by love. Religion is focused on what I do. Christ is focused on what he did because I couldn't do it. So there has to be this this huge transition of going, I'm not going to live my life based out of religion. It's why for so long... We had so many problems with the names on on these church signs because we had to identify with with that particular group. And if we didn't, then we felt convicted about it. So if I don't say that I'm this particular thing, if I don't come with a particular label, it's not enough for me to just say I love Jesus. i got to say I love Jesus through that particular group. And man, we battled that forever. And all we did was build a bunch of walls up. And so these, these walls started going up. And, these, and, and then we started taking pop shots at each other. Well, you may love God, but not as good as we do. And so on. And so this, this became very hard. And so Jesus and the religious people had the exact same goal in mind. They wanted her to sin no more. The Pharisees' plan was to kill her. Jesus' plan was to forgive her. And we got to be careful that we don't adopt this same attitude that people who don't do it the way we do it should be stopped. So sometimes as Christians, we get good at being good. And we think that everyone should be good like we are good. And in reality, the Bible says no one is good. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. All of us. Every single one of us at some time in our lives, we've missed the mark. We've messed up. We've fallen short. We've sinned. Every single one of us. And any good that comes out of us is from God and equally from His grace. Meaning this, our good is not our own good. It's because He's on the inside. And anything that we do that is good is coming from His goodness. Because every good and perfect thing comes from God. And so at any point in our lives where we are living like Christ, acting like Christ, being like Christ, communicating Christ, it's because He's in us and He's flowing out of us. So here's how we know when we are being religious, okay? Let me me give you a few of these. The first one is when you judge people who sin differently than you do. We know we're being religious when we say, yeah, I sin, but I don't sin like that. I only sin good sins. We look at people's lives and we judge them because they sin more publicly than we sin. We're professionals. We sin in private. People rarely know. Some people cuss out loud. I just cuss people out in my head. Why? Because I sin good sins. Right? And so we start to judge people based upon how they've sinned, and it looks different. We judge ourselves by our intention, and we judge other people by how they acted. And so we become religious. Again, we're reverting back to the list. And we're saying, well, at least I said it in my head. So if God does come down here, he's coming for you, not for me, because I kept mine private. 
The second thing is when you try to fix people. Now, only Jesus can fix people. Our job is to love, not to fix. Okay, now I went to a marriage conference last weekend. It was really good. I, I, went, I went feeling great about my marriage. I left suicidal. But <laughs> my wife's chief concern for me was that I try to fix her. Here's my confession all men are fixers. Men, I need an amen like right now. Okay. <laughs> Some men fix air conditioners. Some men fix transmissions. I fix women's attitudes. That's what I do. Okay? I'm a fixer. <laughs> when we're trying to do the work that Jesus should be doing, we become religious. When we think that we can do it, that if, if you would do your life the way I'm living my life, we have become religious, prideful, full of hypocrisy. Okay? The third, when you focus on what you know instead of how you live. We all know people who know right and wrong, but we don't want to be like them. And the Bible is meant to not just inform, but to transform. Okay, in the book of James, chapter 1, I believe it's 27, 28, 29, somewhere around there, James talks about us being a doer of the word and not just a listener. He's saying, listen, it's not enough for you to just hear us talking. It's not enough for you to just hear the word. It's not enough for us to just come in here and preach the gospel. you got to apply it. you got to do something with it. Okay? And so when we focus on what we know instead of how we are actually living, we become religious and we've missed out on great relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay? And the fourth thing, when you value rules over relationship. This woman had broken one of the rules. And there were a lot of rules. Okay? In the Old Testament, there were over 600 rules to be exact. Lots of rules. Lots of stuff that I, I could look at and never measure up. We look at this certain thing and go, man, I, I, that's going on in my life, and that's going on in my life, and that's going on in my life. And before we know it, we are discouraged and we're down because, again, we have filtered, we have filtered God through don't make me come there rather than looking at a finished work of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so there was a lot of rules. Some of them you could handle. Okay, let me give you some examples. Leviticus chapter 11 says, do not eat a weasel. I'm good. Okay, check. I got it. I'm never going to sin there. It actually says weasel, rat, or lizard. Okay, I'm pretty good. Leviticus chapter 2 says, do not burn honey or yeast on the altar. I'm good. Three, do not withhold clothing from, from your wife. Double check. Got it. Okay, we're good. Leviticus goes on to say, Do not have relations with your mom, sister, aunt, or any animal. Check, 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 check. We're good. Okay? I'm good, you're good, we're all good. But then the rules start getting really practical. Okay, in Leviticus 19, men do not shave your beard with a razor. There were absolutely zero hipsters in Leviticus. None. 
Okay? Nobody had the straight and narrow. No tattoos, it says. Uh-oh. Oh, God. Some of you right now, he's going to come down here. Okay? He's coming down. Okay? He says, don't gossip, don't hold a grudge, don't take revenge, respect your father and mother. We start, we start going through these, and we start, you know, okay, I think I can handle some of those. But in order to please God, people tried to be perfect. Now, go and read this for yourself. It did not work. It did not work. And actually, in Romans, it says that God set the Old Testament law up so that it would be clear that we don't have what it takes to reach perfection. The law prepared our hearts for a Savior. Rules prepared us for relationship. But what you have to do is let one down and pick up the other. You have to get that this is not about the rule. That the rule is finished. It's, it's out of me living from a position that God loves me and that's enough. And suddenly, me coming to church looks and feels differently. Suddenly, me giving, me serving, me being a follower of Jesus looks completely different. Because it's no longer about what I can do, it's, it's about what's been done for me. And I'm living life out of celebration of freedom rather than being anchored to a list of stuff. Okay? So Jesus wants religion away from, from your life. Let me hurry up. But second, is he wants grace right in the middle of it. And in this story, Jesus is trying to get religious people away so that he can forgive her, so that he can be Jesus, so that he can unfold the story. And there are some in this room right now, and you are stiff-arming a God that does not exist. And for you following Jesus, hear me, I say this respectfully, following Jesus for you is not fun. Because you are still calling your grandmother's house to see if she's going to answer the phone. And you're still looking at this long, huge list Going, I'm never, ever, ever going to measure up to that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. Again, this is the NLT. says, God saved you by His grace when you believed. And then he, he says this. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Does that sound like He wants to come down here? Does that sound like he can't wait to take a belt off? No. He says, you can't take credit for this. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. You see how that just changed from religion to relationship? You can't earn it. You can't puff up. You can't be prideful. God does not give us what we deserve. And what did Jesus see when he looked in the eyes of, of this woman? Did he see a promiscuous woman? Did he see a woman whose life was over? Did he see a loser? No. He saw a daughter who needed grace. 
Okay, now let's put this into practicality. I know I'm out of time, but listen. I always think, I'm, I'm at this great stage with my, with my daughter and how that plays out into my theology. Because I, I will think about her and how I love her and my thoughts toward her, and then I compare that to how God has those thoughts toward me. If Riley was having this moment of guilt and shame, let's say I come home and I find her sitting still in a, in a room, which would be a miracle. Let's just say she's in that, in that position, and I, I would know something's wrong. She says, Dad, I, this is what happened. I'm so ashamed. I'm full of guilt. I'm, I'm a terrible kid. I'm just terrible. There is no way, not a single ounce of me, would say, I'm glad you told me. I can't wait to get this belt off. I just cannot wait to get a hope. Mm-mm. You know what I'd do, man? I'd sit next to her. I'd put my arm around her. I'd kiss her face. I'd talk her through it. I'd talk her through it. I'd encourage her. There's no way that I would, I would go the other route. And for some reason, in our minds, this is how we want to go with God. That I'm, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to tell you these things. But I know when this is over, you're going to turn on me and thunder and lightning and of course we, we put it in practical things I'm, you're going to ruin my marriage you're going to expose me you're going to shut down my finances you're going to cause me to lose my job you're going to cause one of us to get sick I mean we immediately go to Old Testament Exodus kind of thing and the truth is this work of grace that we're probably never going to get in our humanity is actually God coming down and putting his arms around us and encouraging us and removing shame and removing guilt and reminding us that we're never, ever going to achieve the list. And that's why he took it to the cross. That all the things that we're never going to be able to do in our own works, he took to the cross. And he finished it for us. He finished it for us. He took it upon himself. And it's important that we understand this because if we don't understand grace, we cannot understand God fully. And Romans 5 says it best, and I'll close with this. Verse 8, the, the NIV says, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, still a sinner, Not, not perfected, not trying, not on the straight and narrow, didn't have it all together, wasn't polished, a hot mess. While you were a sinner, he died for you. Come on, somebody. We ought to be excited about that. He died for us. When we were broken, when we were crazy, when we were running amok, before we ever, ever loved him back, he loved us first while we were sinners. And all of our stories and all the things that we could talk about, even then, 
if he loved you. When you were hiding out somewhere trying to find some privacy to shoot drugs into your arms, he loved you right then. Right then, he loved you. I want you to bow your head with me this morning, and I want to talk to you a second.